You're listening to the Tri-State Community Church Podcast, a ministry of the Associate Reformed Presbyterian Church located in the greater Pittsburgh metropolitan area. For more information, including service times, please visit us at facebook.com forward slash Tri-State Reformed Church. Psalm 62, page 479 If you're in your Bible, if you're using the church's Bible. Let's read together. Follow along with me. For God alone my soul waits in silence. From Him comes my salvation. He alone is my rock and my salvation, my fortress. I shall not be greatly shaken. How long will all of you attack a man to batter him? Like a leaning wall, a tottering fence. They only plan to thrust him down from his high position. They take pleasure in falsehood. They bless with their mouths, but inwardly they curse. For God alone, O my soul, wait in silence. For my hope is from Him. He is my rock and my salvation, my fortress. I shall not be shaken. On God rests my salvation and my glory. My mighty rock, my refuge is God. Trust in Him at all times, O people. Pour out your heart before Him. God is a refuge for us. Those of low estate are but a breath. Those of high estate are a delusion. In the balances they go up, they are together lighter than a breath. Put no trust in extortion, set no vain hopes on robbery. If riches increase, set not your heart of them. Once God has spoken, twice have I heard this, that power belongs to God, and that to you, O Lord, belongs steadfast love, for you will render to a man according to his work. And we ask that God blesses this reading of his word. Let's pray together, would you? Pray with me. Well, Heavenly Father, we come to you right now um, recognizing our need to hear from you. And Lord, as we open up our word, we ask that you would open the eyes of our heart to receive from us, receive from you what you would have us to receive. And we ask this in your Son, Jesus' name. Amen. So, life is a mixed bag of joy and sorrow. Would you agree? Um, there are moments in our lives where it almost seems as if we're catching a little glimpse of heaven. Those sublime little moments when, just for an instant, everything is as it should be. There's no sorrow, anxiety, strife, only joy, contentment, satisfaction. These are the moments that cause our heart to flutter, you know? They cause a tear to well up in our eye. Maybe it's a beautiful sunset. I was thinking about being out on the lake, on the kayak, out of Matt's place, a vast starry night, Um, maybe the affirmation of a loved one when you've accomplished something, Uh, the unexpected embrace of a loved one, and then maybe that sincere I love you, like when your child just gives you that unexpected I love you. You These are the moments that just kind of, they feel wonderful. And I think we've all experienced something like that. And then we've experienced the opposite as well, haven't we? If the good times tend to be measured in moments, why does it seem that the hard, difficult times seem to be measured in hours, in days, weeks, sometimes years? Just live long enough and you'll become well acquainted with sorrow. And as one song lyric puts it, it says, Life is such a precious gift, so fragile so infirm, its joys foretaste divine, its sorrows crush the soul. One minute you're celebrating the birth of our nation, fireworks, food, family, 
The next minute, you're burying a loved one who died in an accident. What we prayed about this morning. And I think all of us here recognize the reality of this. Um, We live in a broken world. What we see day in, day out, the pain, the sorrow, the struggle, the death, it's actually all foreign to God's original design. And that's why we, we react to it. That's why we recognize it is wrong. Because it's not supposed to be this way. But as Rick has put it in our study of Romans, we live in a world that's been given over to the realm of sin and death. All due to Adam's sin and our sin and rebellion. As a matter of fact, if you look in your bulletin at the Westminster Shorter Catechism question, question 19, it asks, What is the misery of that estate wherein to man fell? And the answer is, All mankind by their fall lost communion with God, are under His wrath and curse, and so made liable to all miseries in this life, to death itself, and to the pains of hell forever. And I remember hearing uh, Pastor Don Carson, D.A. Carson, say that one of the primary jobs of a minister is to teach his flock how to suffer well. Because suffering's coming in life. And that's kind of my goal for today. Like, what a goal. Yay! It's a real upper. Um, By God's grace, though, the goal this morning is to provide a reminder that we can have peace in the midst of life's most difficult storms. But it can only come from God alone. Not something new, but something that we can all be reminded of. So to do this, we're going to look at Psalm 62. And this psalm is very special to me because the Lord used it to minister to me during what has been probably the most challenging part of my personal life. Um, I don't claim to have suffered like a lot of people. But you know if you go through something that's suffering in your own life, it's hard. And in 2009, Isaac was born. Um, two weeks after his birth, I returned back to work after I'd been home with him because first child, you take a couple weeks off. I returned to work that week and I received a phone call while at work that my father-in-law, who had been a pastor for 26 years, was having an affair and had decided to, to leave my mother-in-law. And literally, literally 30 minutes later, I was called into my boss's office and... <laughs> I was told that my job was being terminated due to the economic downturn, and it was rough. <laughs> Needless to say, it was a really bad day, which turned into weeks, which turned into months. Then you fast forward a year, and there's a lot of more details, but you fast forward a year, and my grandfather, who I was extremely close to, uh, he dies. We knew he was ill, but somewhat unexpectedly, more quickly than we anticipated, and I mean, I literally fell and felt like my life was falling apart. Um, each of the circumstances were difficult in and of themselves, but combined, they literally felt unbearable. And especially the loss of my grandfather, um, he'd always been there. You got, if you've experienced loss, you know this. He was a rock in my life. He was a refuge. He was a constant because he was always there. Now suddenly, I'm waking up in the mornings with this pit in my stomach, with anxiety. I've never been anxious a day in my life. Now all of a sudden, I have anxiety. I feel overwhelmed by life, and my faith as a consequence is really being tested. 
I mean, my faith is being tested. Something I never questioned in my whole life. Because now all of a sudden, there's these questions like, why is this happening? If God's good, why is this happening? Um, And another question, is all of this real? Is what we're doing every Sunday real? Or is this just something we've made up to make ourselves feel better? You know, because we have this thing called death that intrudes in our life and we need to feel, we need to do something about that. So I'm questioning these things and it's, I was in a dark spot. So later that year, I remember sitting in my room and I'm on the computer and I come across a song by, believe it or not, a Christian hip hop artist uh, and his name Lecrae. And he'd written this song in response to the Haiti earthquake. I don't know if you remember back at that time, there was this earthquake and it was really tragic. It killed a lot of people. And if you'll indulge me for just a moment, I'd like to read you these lyrics um, because as I heard them, I really felt like they were, it was literally my condition. I was resonating with it. Even though there's some lines that are specific to the crisis in Haiti, I'm just going, wow, this is how I feel. So bear with me. It goes, hopeless. I can spell it. I can smell it in the air. A lot of people wonder if you still care. And are you still there? Because I lost it all. I keep calling your name, but do you hear my call? And are you still involved? Or am I left alone? I wonder the streets because I no longer have a home. My brother's all gone. My sister's all gone. My family and my friends ain't going to be here in the morning. You see me here mourning. They say you feel my pain. They say you went through it. Say to die is to gain. But I ain't gained nothing. I lost everybody. Now I'm losing my mind and my faith is all I'm counting. I'm still holding on. That's why I still pray. Feeling empty inside can't make it through today. I don't know what else to do. I don't know what else to say. I'm talking to you now, but I promise you feel so far. And then the chorus goes far, far away. You seem far away. You feel. And then verse 2 goes, Dear Hope, been waiting on you for a while now. Been cut so deep that I ain't sure if I can smile now. Look at this devastation. Look at the pain and sorrow. Somebody fed me lies and promised me a bright tomorrow. I know the God I follow is bigger than disaster, big enough to handle any evil that harasses us. But I feel like he passed us. Pain overtook us. Building tumble overhead as the ground shook us. God, have you forsook us? Lord, you still with me? I know you save souls. I trust you to forgive me. Relief, can you hear me? Rest, can you get me? Peace, can you see me? Love, can you heal me? I don't know what to do. I ain't looking for answers. I just need you to hold my hand through this cancer. Tell me that you never left. Even in the midst of death. Sorry. Breathe on me. I'll do anything to feel your breath. And then far, far away. So... I'm listening to this, you know, tears. I'm a blubbering idiot while I'm listening to it. And I'm going, this is exactly how I feel. And then all of a sudden, the song changes, okay? The, the lyrics are, are not wrapped, they're read. And he says, for God alone, all my soul, wait in silence, for my hope is in Him. He only is my rock and my salvation, my fortress, I shall not be shaken. On God rests my salvation and my glory, my mighty rock, my refuge is God. Trust in Him at all times, O people. Pour out your heart before Him. God is a refuge for us. 
And then the chorus is repeated, but this time it says, far, far away, he's not. Far, far away, my God's not. And I'm thinking to myself, what was that? That was cool. You know, like all of a sudden there's this, there's this lament that he's saying, but he's comforting himself with something. And I'm going, that sounded an awful lot like a psalm. So I look it up. Thank you, Google. I look it up and quickly find that this is Psalm 62. And I'm not sure I'd ever really paid attention to it prior to this moment. But guess what? I did from that point on. You know, this psalm has become my internal prayer. Um, Whenever those familiar feelings of doubt or sorrow or anxiety creep up, this is my prayer, man. This is where I'm going to. So with that context, let's turn to Psalm 62 and let's unpack this this beautiful God-breathed treasure. All right, so first, we're told at the outset that this is a psalm of David. And though we don't know the specific events behind the psalm, we see very quickly that, yet again, David's in some trouble. Evil men were threatening his life and they're scheming to topple him. And you'll see that the psalm is broken into three stanzas, so each ending with the word Selah. So the first stanza includes verses 1 through 4, where we're going to see the psalmist expressing a silent hope in God. The second stanza includes verses 5 through 8, where we see him exhorting himself to a patient hope in God. And then finally, the third stanza includes verses 9 through 12, and here the psalmist provides a contrast between what we should trust in and what not to trust in. And right off the bat, the main theme of this psalm really boils down to the right and wrong objects of our faith. So if we trust in God, we're secure. If we trust in men or in things or in circumstances, we're depending on that which is lighter than breath, which we see in verse 9. It's also interesting to note that this psalm actually contains no prayer, which is a contrast to most other psalms. And as Old Testament scholar H.C. Leopold writes, he says, quote, There is scarcely another psalm that reveals such an absolute and undisturbed peace in which confidence in God is so completely unshaken and in which assurance is so strong that not even one single petition is voiced in the psalm. So here in Psalm 62, we're given a template. We're given a template of a life at peace during life's most treacherous moments. But as we'll soon see, David's making it clear that this peace only comes when God alone is our salvation and our refuge. Now, we can be honest and realize that's, it's one thing to say, God's my salvation, my refuge. It's another thing to rest in that. And it's a very challenging thing to do. And you're going to see in the psalm that David himself struggles to stay there. But let's, look at, uh, let's start by looking at the first stanza, verses 1 through 4. And let's give it a title. Let's call it, Peace Begins with Trust. Peace Begins with Trust. So the psalm begins with a phrase showing that David is calmly waiting on God. What's it say? For God alone, my soul waits in silence. From him comes my salvation. He only is my rock and my salvation, my fortress. I shall not be greatly shaken. But for the sake of context, let's begin with verses 3 and 4 so we can kind of understand where David's coming from and his situation. So some think David wrote this in the context of Absalom's rebellion. Absalom was his son who was trying to overthrow him as king. We can't know that for sure. What we do know is that he's under attack. And this attack seems to be prolonged because what does he say in verse 3? How long, O Lord? 
We also see that David's enemies were conspiring behind his back to do what? Thrust him down from his high position as king. So we get the impression his enemies are two-faced. On one hand, they're spreading falsehoods. But then on the other, they're using flattery to his face, but inwardly they're cursing him behind his back. They were like a bunch of people that are pushing on a wall that's already leaning over to push it down. Or to say it in a modern way, it's like they were kicking him while he was already down. They were like that villain in a movie who takes advantage of an already bad situation for their own personal gain. And being a dad, I have the privilege of watching a lot of cartoons. So my mind immediately went to a Disney movie when I thought of these villains. Uh, Reminds me of Jafar and Aladdin, if you've ever seen Aladdin. And you remember him, he's that advisor to the king. And all the while, he's telling the king how he loves him and how he serves him. But what's he doing behind his back? He's trying to kill him. He's trying to take his place. So needless to say, David's in a bad place here. I mean, just put yourself in his shoes for a minute. People are trying to get rid of him. They're trying to kill him. That's, that's a bad day. Now, with that in mind, look back at verse 1. Keep that context in mind and look at how David begins. For God alone, my soul waits in silence. So David's surrounded by enemies, potentially at risk of death, and he says, For God alone, my soul waits in silence. I I don't know about you, I can't keep my mouth shut in the mundane things, let alone things that are dire. You know, and needless to say, David is really composed amidst this trying time. It's impressive. And listen to how John Calvin explains the meaning of silence in verse 1. As a matter of fact, it's in your bulletin. It's on the back page if you want to read this quote. Um, I think it's really helpful. So what does silence mean in verse 1? For God alone, my soul waits in silence. Calvin says, The silence intended is, in short, that composed submission of the believer in the exercise of which he acquiesces in the promise of God, promises of God, gives place to his word, bows to his sovereignty, and suppresses every inward murmur of dissatisfaction. Now, that sounds kind of funny to our ears today, but the key word is submission. When difficult things happen to us, we can either be angry, complain to God and say things like, I don't deserve this, this isn't fair, or we can submit to Him. We can agree with the promises He's given us in His Word. Now, those promises are not health, wealth, and prosperity in this life. They're the promise of a new life. We can submit to His Word, we can bow before his sovereignty and suppress our, attempt to, our, our tendency to grumble. So we can complain or we can submit ourselves to who he is as God. And do you remember the story of Job? If you recall the story, God took Job's possessions. He took his children. He took his health. And when all of this is taken away, what does Job say? The Lord gave and the Lord has taken away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. Now, Job wrestles with this for sure. I mean, we sang about it. Where were you? That's the story of Job, and that's God answering Job. Here, Job, let me tell you a little something. But by the end of the book, again, we see Job in this posture of worship. He's bowing before God's sovereign hand. So humbling ourselves under the mighty hand of God and submitting to his sovereignty is key to experiencing peace in those trials. 
It's a recognition that God is in control and that we can rest assured that anything that comes to us in this life has come through His hand. And it's for His glory and our good. So peace begins with trust. It's not an easy thing to do, but it's true. David then adds in two, He alone is my rock and my salvation, my fortress. I shall not be greatly shaken. And in this context, the salvation is referring to David being delivered from the enemies. And it's true that we can trust God for salvation in our own lives, but we also need to recognize the bigger picture at play here. We can't all relate to David's situation of having enemies who want to kill us, but we can, re- we can relate to his condition. So like David, we were born into the realm of sin and death. We were born dead in sin. We were born enemies of God. We were born deserving of God's judgment. But did God leave us that way? No. No. Ephesians 2, 8, 9. You guys know this. For by grace you've been saved through faith, and this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God, not the result of works, so that no one can boast. Now here's the point. If God alone is your salvation from eternal death, if he raised you from death to life and gave you the faith to believe and love Jesus Christ, then you can also take refuge in him from less threatening trials. If you can trust him with eternity, can you trust him with your anxiety, with your doubts, your fear, your pain? If you trust God as your only source of salvation from sin, then trust him with your troubles. And then when suffering comes, submit to his sovereign hand, take refuge in his goodness, and trust him alone for your salvation. So peace begins with trust. Two, peace requires perseverance. In verses five through seven, David's going to repeat what he already said in verses one and two. See that? But there's a few variations. And so what's up with the variations? Well, in verse 3 and 4, remember, he's been thinking about his situation. Remember those enemies, those people that were plotting to overthrow him? It could be that David's a little bit shaken. He's thinking about his situation. He's thinking about what's going on. So in verses 5 through 7, he gives a response. But notice, it's not to his enemies. It's not to God. It's to himself. Because here's the truth. We never reach a place of perfect composure where severe trials don't affect us. And so we have to fight to regain that peace. And David is giving us an example of how to do this. This is a perfect example. He's talking to himself. He says, look what he says in verse 5. He says, for God alone, what? Oh, my soul. And this would sound familiar to you if you have a really, really good memory. And remember back to when we talked about Psalm 42 and 43. When our soul is troubled, when we're longing for God but we don't sense His presence, when we're overwhelmed by life circumstances, what should we do? Preach to yourself. Seems funny, but preach to yourself. What did David do? He interrupted his troubled thoughts. Verses 3 and 4, he's troubled. He's thinking about what's going on, but he doesn't allow himself to stay focused on those. Instead, he interrupts this conversation that's taking place in his own heart, and he starts to question it. And Dr. Martin Lloyd-Jones, a pastor, he says this so well. He describes this practice, okay? 
And he says, have you realized that most of your unhappiness in life is due to the fact that you're listening to yourself instead of talking to yourself? The main art in the matter of spiritual living is to know how to handle yourself. You have to take yourself in hand. You have to address yourself, preach to yourself, question yourself. You must say to your soul, why art thou cast down? What business have you to be disquieted? You must turn on yourself, upbraid yourself, exhort yourself, and say to yourself, hope now in God. This is exactly what David does in Psalm 62. He piles description after description of who God is. After telling himself to wait in silence for God only, that submission, silence is submission, what's he add? For my hope is from him. He only is my rock, my salvation, my fortress. I shall not be shaken. And notice this time he does not say, I shall not be greatly shaken, like he said in verse 2. He actually takes it up a notch and he says, I shall not be shaken. In other words, at all. Then in verse 7, he repeats it again. Verse 7, on God rests my salvation and my glory, my mighty rock, my refuge is God. And notice too in this passage how much David uses the pronoun my. David knew God personally as his hope, as his rock, his salvation, his stronghold, his strength and his refuge. And there's a lesson in this. And that's if we want God's peace in trials, we have to know God personally. Um, Rick talked about this the last couple of weeks about when we come to God's word, when we talk about things like doctrine and what can seem heady topics, they're not just so we can know more facts. They're so that they can transform who we are and how we see God personally. And this is why so much of what we do here at the church is centered on understanding who God is. Whether it's the morning service, whether it's Wednesday night, the songs we sing, we're intentionally taking the focus off of us and we're putting it on God. And why do we do that? Because the more we understand God and we understand His beauty, His holiness, His greatness, His love, His justice, His kindness, the more we love Him, the more we trust Him. And so as we understand Him for who He truly is, our problems, even the most painful problems, diminish. Because as we're going to see later in the psalm, when they're put on the scales next to who God is, they're but a breath. Just think of the song we sang this morning. A torrent of destruction hid my darkened soul from rescuing. I cried to God for help. He heard my voice. Kind of sounds like somebody who's in the situation like David. But listen to this. The tainted earth, it rocked and reeled. The heavens bowed, the mountains kneeled. The thunderous voice of God, my covering. The mountains kneeled. What a great image. I will not be afraid. Why? For my hope is in His name. Who is a rock but our God? Whose blood has sealed our freedom? Jesus, our Savior, Defender, Redeemer. So the point in all this is that David's fighting. He's fighting to put these comforting truths front and center in his mind. Otherwise, it's as if he knows if he doesn't do this, he's at risk of being shaken due to his circumstances. So preach to yourself. 
Fight to make God your only source of deliverance. He only is my rock and my salvation, my fortress. Then I shall not be shaken. But don't stop there. Look at verse 8. David can't contain this joy of knowing God is his salvation. So what does he write? He writes, Trust in Him at all times, O people. Pour out your heart before Him. God is a refuge for us. David's giving us advice. And he's giving it to us that's born out of experience. He's saying, look, I've been at the bottom, but listen to me, God is trustworthy. Put your hope in Him. Now, what do we do with this pour out your heart before Him? Be silent. Kind of funny. Remember, waiting in silence is just to put our hearts into submission to God's sovereign hand. It's an attitude of trusting submission that God's in control, He's good, and He's working for our good as well. But pouring out our hearts before Him is a call to unburden ourselves in prayer, where we empty all of our anxieties, our confusion, our doubts, our pain onto the Lord while still remaining in submission to Him as God. Listen to how John Calvin explains this verse. He says, What the psalmist advises is all the more necessary, considering the mischievous tendency which we have naturally to keep our troubles pent up in our breasts till they drive us to despair. Men show much anxiety and ingenuity in seeking to escape from the troubles which press upon them. But so long as they shun coming into the presence of God, they only involve themselves in a labyrinth of difficulties. So peace begins with trust, and peace requires perseverance. David's encouraging us to fight for this peace by reminding ourselves of who God is, by casting our cares on Him through prayer, and then taking refuge and placing our hope in Him alone. Now the psalm's going to conclude by showing us what not to trust. And then repeating again who we should trust. So the third stanza, peace comes from God alone. So in the first stanza, David looked at his enemies in relation to himself. He was a leaning wall at risk of being pushed over. Now, after preaching to himself in the second stanza, he compares his enemies to an all-powerful, loving God, his fortress. And he says, these dangerous men lighter than breath. Those of low estate are but a breath. Those of high estate are a delusion. And the balances they go up, they are together lighter than a breath. So David's surveying his enemies. Some of them are lowlifes. Some of them are people of influence and power. But you put them on a scale next to God and what happens? They don't measure up. They're lighter than breath. In other words, don't trust people for your security. Don't put your hope in people. Trust God, who's infinitely more trustworthy. David, again, is just seeing the greatness of God. And then he goes on to say, don't trust in man's methods of security. Money, extortion, it can't guarantee the peace you seek. Which is something I think is hard for most of us. Because in most of our situations, we think, boy, if I just had a little bit more of that green stuff, life would be a lot easier doesn't bring peace once God has spoken twice I have heard this that power belongs to God and that to you O Lord belongs steadfast love for you will render to a man according to his work 
So David ends, reminding us of two very important truths. The first comes at the end of verse 11. Power belongs to God. Look around the world we live in. Drugs, war, domestic violence, pain, suffering. Doesn't look like power belongs to God, does it? What does David say? Once God has spoken, twice I've heard this. Power belongs to God. David was surrounded by powerful men. He could have caved into the illusion that God wasn't in control. But God gives David a divine revelation that we can cling to as a promise today. And that's, don't be fooled by appearances. All power belongs to God. We don't always understand his plans, but rest assured, God is in control. And here's the second truth. God is love. To you, O Lord, belongs steadfast love. Absolute power doesn't bring comfort unless it's accompanied by love. And this is where the rubber really meets the road, isn't it? God, in his love, has rescued us from our greatest threat. He's rescued us from ourselves. Because when left to our own devices, we will never submit to his rule. We will never submit to his sovereignty. Because we're his enemies. But if you're in Christ this morning, if by God's grace, your eyes have been opened to see his beauty, your ears have been opened to hear his truth, and if your heart has been changed so that you recognize your sinful condition and trust in Jesus as your only hope, you can rest. And you can have peace in the greatest trials that life can produce. Because... You have a Savior who can sympathize with your weakness. Look to the cross, and there you'll see the ultimate injustice. You think your situation's unjust. Look to the cross, where Christ, the perfect, sinless man, was tortured, crucified, endured God's wrath, so that we might have peace with God and have a future hope. Hope in a future that's so glorious that our present sufferings don't even compare. Romans 8, verse 18. And I can't wait till we get to Romans 8. Uh, it's a great chapter. But listen to this verse. Romans 8, 18 says, For I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed. I mean, just think on that for a moment. The suffering we experience in this life, it's real. It can be horrific if we're honest but it doesn't even compare. I mean, we can't even wrap our minds around that. It doesn't even compare to the glory that awaits us. New heavens, new earth, resurrected bodies, being in the presence of the triune God, being with our brothers and sisters, apart from sin for all eternity. So when trials come, when you feel the weight, the anxiety, the sorrow creeps up, Remember this future hope. Remember that Christ was broken so that you can have peace. Remember that peace begins with trust, but it requires perseverance. Fight for it. Remind yourself of who God is. Remind yourself of what He's done. And then pour your heart out to Him when you don't understand. Don't bottle your emotions in, but rather lay them at His feet in prayer 
and trust that he's in control. But not that he's just in control, but that he's working for your good, the good of those who have been called according to his purpose. Amen. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you for this truth. Thank you that in the midst of life's trials and life's storms, we can have peace. Or not because of anything we can do, but because of what you've already done, because of who you are. Thank you, Lord, for being a loving God. Thank you for condescending to love creatures that have hated you. Lord, we ask that you would, you would really put these things in our hearts in such a way that we can put them into action in our daily lives. Lord, for your glory and for our good, we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.